Hello, and welcome to Running Mate, a podcast for Brits about the US election. In today's episode, America, where did it all go wrong? Just a note before we get started, this episode was written and recorded before Donald Trump was admitted to hospital with coronavirus. This is the radical question, left. Will you who shut is up, on, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so list? right. Gentlemen, is, I think this we've is ended so this. He's going to pack the court. We have end, oh, no, not no, give a list. We have ended this segment. The recent debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden was seen as a new low for American politics. And let's be honest, the grim spectacle was almost entirely the fault of one man. But it's not as if we couldn't see it coming. Questions about federal income taxes are swirling around President Trump again tonight. Uh, This is the same playbook they tried in 2016, the same playbook that the American people rejected, um, and will do so again. He depends more and more on making money from businesses that put him in potential and often direct conflict of interest with his job as president. Just in the last two weeks, the U.S. has had to grapple with a president that appears to pay little income tax, a Supreme Court vacancy that risks undermining women's rights, and the possibility of a very messy transfer of power in November. That's before you consider a pandemic that shows little sign of abating, even before entering an extremely difficult winter. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. So in today's episode, we discuss how did America lose its way? Hello, my name's Graham Demonick from HuffPost UK team and joining me today are two of my colleagues from the US. We've got Zach Carter, who's a senior reporter at HuffPost. Hello, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. And Emily Peck, also senior reporter at HuffPost. Hello, Emily. How are you? Hi, I'm good. I say that reflexively. I'm good. I'm great. <laughs> That's what we say in the United States. It has to States. be, yeah. No, no other reaction at the moment. No, no, no bad vibes here. Is that, is that what people say? Chill vibes only, Graham. Right. Gotcha. Um... So for anyone coming to the podcast for the first time, this is what we're trying to do. I'm a British journalist living and working in America. And at HuffPost UK, we wanted to try and produce something that made sense of the US election. Um, This time around, we wanted to tackle a bigger theme rather than a specific um, topic. Um, And I wasn't really sure how to describe it. Something like, oh, America, or America, are you okay? Or (laughs) America, the dumpster fire. But I think it's the idea is maybe from the UK, um, the US from afar has been seen with, a I don't know, a mix of kind of fear and envy for, 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 for decades. But now there's a kind of sense of, I don't know, maybe it's pity, maybe it's a kind of a, a kind of secondhand embarrassment. But there seems to be a, a kind of a change in tone in how people are looking at America. And I kind of wanted to look at that this week. And to start off with, let's go through the biggest news topic of the week, which I think is probably Donald Trump's taxes. What's what's the importance of this, do you think? Uh, Zach, do you want to have a, have a go at that one? Sure. Uh, I'm inclined to think that it, it does matter uh, and that it uh, it does matter to um, to people who are able to change their minds about politics, which is an increasingly small portion of the public, but it still exists. And when Trump supporters talk about Trump on social media, they spend a lot of time 
denying things that are uh, in fact true about him. So it, it matters to them um, that Trump not be um, who he in fact is. I think it's something that's really hurting politics um, beyond Trump. I think maybe it's one, one of the, the sort of factors that helped fuel his popularity in 2016. Um, people do believe that the American economy and economic system is, is compromised or corrupt. And they think that rich people are up to the stuff that Donald Trump is up to all the time. And to some extent, they're not wrong. Trump does appear to be more aggressive or flagrant about his abuse of the tax code than um, other wealthy people. Um, I have a piece coming out in HuffPost shortly comparing him to GE, which you know is a major corporation that also frequently doesn't pay taxes. Um, but GE does this by hiring a lot of sophisticated accountants from just about every wing of the federal government. So they have friends in high places. Um, Trump appears to be doing some of that, but but in other cases, uh, he's he's just taken deductions and benefits that are uh, pretty pretty flagrantly abusive. Um, you know whether they're illegal or not will be decided by uh, by judges and courts um, ultimately. But this is stuff that makes even rich people uh, blanch a bit. So I I think you know whenever you talk about Trump and his base, there's a, there's a question about who you mean for the base. There are some people who are never going to change their mind about the president. I, I always think about George W. Bush leaving office after uh, Hurricane Katrina had basically destroyed a major American city uh, in the middle of a financial crisis that was wrecking the global economy uh, after a disastrous invasion of Iraq that had uh, killed hundreds of thousands of people and destroyed uh, much of the uh, United States reputation and good name abroad. Um, he still had an approval rating of about 35%. So I think that's about as bad as you can get in American politics. Um, but but 35% is pretty low. And uh, I, I think I think news like this does make make a lot of people say, yeah, I, I can't, I can't get with that guy. Um, but still 35%. It's tough. Yeah, Emily, wh wh where do you come in on this? Do you, do you think it do you think do you think it matters? I mean, my, my kind of feeling is that shouldn't you know, it might not be illegal, but it's not necessary in the spirit of paying taxes, is it? Yeah. So rich people trying to get away with paying as little in taxes as possible is for sure the American way. There are plenty of examples. The bottom line is rich people don't want to pay a lot of taxes and often don't. But even among rich people in the United States, Trump really stands out for doing a lot of tax dodging and employing criminal strategies, essentially, to avoid paying taxes. Like, for example, Trump, the family has a big fancy mansion, actually right near where I live in Westchester. I don't live in, right. a, in a fancy mansion. Um, just to make that clear. Just, just to be clear. <laughs> um, and the, the property tax bill on the fancy mansion is about $2.2 million, right? Um, taxes here where I live in Westchester are very high. Um, but the Trump administration recently helped pass a law. Maybe the only thing that the administration has pulled off successfully in Congress is this tax law, which capped property tax deductions at $10,000 a year. Trump is writing off $2.2 million a year by saying that this mansion isn't like a mansion mansion per se. Like it's a, a commercial property. I mean, it's, it's obvious nonsense and seems criminal. Um, so yeah, even among the rich, I think what he's doing is very next level. And one wonders if he wasn't president right now, if he leaves office, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of people interested in perhaps levying charges against him for tax fraud and evasion. Right. 
so it's, so it's not just kind of like common or garden tax efficiency, which is, is often the kind of phrase I think people like, you know, the, the, the big four accountants use. It's, it's pushing it right to, right to the limit, you think. And, and Graham, I would add that among presidents, at least, this is highly unusual. Other presidents have paid their taxes. Um, the Washington Post actually had a, a nice piece about our Jimmy Carter, who was president from 19, in 1976 who um, got a big tax deduction one year and wasn't going to owe federal taxes and was so horrified by that prospect that he voluntarily paid thousands of dollars to the IRS. I mean, that's just unimaginable from Trump, right? Right. Okay, so we've established that it's, it's, it's bad. But I mean, does it, <laughs> does it, do, is it going to make any difference? I mean, this was kind of the instant, the instant two cent, two penny, reaction on on social media was oh well you know it doesn't matter this is all priced in into into trump's into trump's ratings the base doesn't care and what do you what do you make of that whole debate emily oh i don't think nihilism is a sound strategy politically <laughs> um it may be true trump has a solid level of, of support in his base and he's he's never gonna lose that but it's important to expose this to the public um it might not matter to his re-election but it matters to the historical record it, it it matters um in terms of you know just because you might not catch the murderer you still need to point out that a murder has happened and do right. your best to solve it um you know <laughs> if there's tax fraud if there's criminal behavior needs to come to light so it does matter you know big picture beyond political fallout so the, I think the other hot button issue that, that the people in the UK will be intrigued to know a bit more about is um, the, the the future of the Supreme Court and the direction that's taking following the death of Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg and the um, a- appointment, not yet confirmed, of Amy Coney Barrett. Just to interrupt briefly, I'm pausing the chat to explain an Americanism or a historical reference, just so it makes more sense to someone listening in the UK. A quick explainer on what the Supreme Court does. Put simply, it's the highest court in the land and has the final word on controversial laws and disputes between states and the federal government. What makes the court and the nine justices that sit on it so influential is its power of judicial review. This gives it the ability to strike down laws if they undermine the US Constitution. As such, it's designed to protect fundamental values, such as freedom of speech and due process of law, from the excesses of other branches of government, namely the presidency and Congress. But critics fear its impartiality is in question, given the political leanings of its justices and the fact they're appointed by the president. Following the death of Liberal Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the court is set to have a 6-3 conservative majority. That's why liberal policies, such as abortion rights, are seen as being at risk. What people in the UK would know is that this appointment will solidify the conservative majority on the Supreme Court and it will have an impact on America for generations. Um, Emily, you wrote a piece... Um, just after RBG's death, uh, the headline was RBG's fight for women's rights is more urgent than ever. Um, that was before Coney Barrett was was named as the potential successor. Um, what, what were you trying to get at? And, and are, are things now more worrying now that you know who the um, 
who the nominee is. What was so wonderful about Ruth Bader Ginsburg was that for her entire career, she was a supporter and a fighter for equality. So for gender equality and for women. Um, At her time before she was on the court, I don't know if people in the UK know this, she um, was involved in hundreds of cases involving sex discrimination because back then um, there were all these kinds of wild and crazy laws in the United States, um, like women couldn't have a mortgage without their husband, you know, signing on or get a credit card or be in charge of their um, of the money after their husband died or I mean, just wild stuff. And she tirelessly fought a few times in front of the Supreme Court to essentially get the United States to recognize women as human beings with equal rights under the law. And um, and and on the court, you know, she wasn't always in the majority, but she was always fighting on that side of equality. And you just knew that Trump and conservatives, <laughs> they're not on that side, right? They are in the United States. Um, abortion is still this very hot button issue, but so is reproductive rights. So is um, so many other human rights. And whoever Trump was going to nominate was going to be sort of on the other side of RBG. And now that she's Amy Coney Barrett's been nominated, it's sort of this confirms what we knew that whoever was going to get nominated was going to turn the court in a more conservative direction but it's also this sort of like cynical move on trump and the republicans part to kind of slot in a woman with three initials to replace this other woman with three initials as if there are these interchangeable parts um but there's nothing about amy coney barrett to indicate at all that she would carry on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy. So I'm still very worried for the future of um, gender equality in the U.S. And what and what's what's really at risk, just for for, for people in the U.K. who who might not know, I think the uh, re- reverse of Roe v. Wade's um, seems to be the the, the 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 main one, and that would be um, rolling back uh, abortion rights in 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 certain states. Is that that is is that is that is that is that, is that the biggest fear? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what people know in the UK, but so Roe versus Wade was the case that legalized abortion in the United States in 1973. And ever since that ruling came down in favor of abortion, conservatives have been trying to get it rolled back. And um, and, and every time there's a seat up on the court, they're like, this is going to be the judge that overturns Roe v. Wade. And then things happen and Roe v. Wade does not get overturned. Um the goal this time, as always, is to overturn it, of course. But conservatives have really had a lot of success in recent years kind of chipping away at abortion rights, passing all kinds of laws that make it really hard in conservative states for women to even get an abortion. There's women who have to drive like hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to an abortion clinic and things like that. So while it's not totally clear that this appointee, if she gets on the court, would like officially overturn Roe v. Wade, it is pretty clear that she would chip away at those reproductive rights. One of the things that's really remarkable about um, RBG in her lifetime is that you know she she wasn't just an abortion um, you know advocate or, or an abortion rights advocate. Um, you know she was doing all this stuff that was about economic rights for women before she was she was on the court. And I think when you look at uh, Amy Coney Barrett's record uh, around things like political corruption and around things like um, the ability for work for companies to you know, dictate 
things in their their workers' lives. Um, she sides with power all the time. Whoever's in power um, is is going to get uh, the benefit of the doubt from from Judge Barrett historically. So I think things like corruption, things like money in politics, I think it has the potential to just damage democracy and faith in the country's ability to govern, which I think is part of what um, creates some of this um, support for people like Donald Trump, who who hold the government and, <laughs> and everything about it in contempt. I mean, uh, so so yeah, I'm I'm really worried about Amy Coney Barrett, and I think I think she's she's somebody who people should worry about. Uh, you know, even if even if they are uh, anti-abortion hardliners, I think there's a lot of stuff um, in her record that is you know worthy of, of giving pause. The the next thing I wanted to talk about was Trump. Uh, accepting the election results. Zach, you wrote a piece called Donald Trump is committing a crime against democracy when it was clear that Trump was trying to undermine postal voting. Now that it's not certain whether Trump would accept a peaceful transfer of power, is that even more the case? The reason I wrote that piece is because Trump went out and just said, yes, I am interfering with the functioning of the Postal Service because <laughs> I think it will help me get reelected and this will it will allow me to discount votes. I mean, it was it was just stunning. Um, and you just kind of had to stop and say, OK, look, this is this is really bad. <laughs> this is actually bad. Um, I have good days and bad days when I think about this stuff on, on an optimistic day, I think. I think the fact that Republicans have come out and said, look, we will accept there will be a peaceful transfer of power full stop is, is something that that does matter. Um, I think that symbolism is important, even if it comes from Republicans who are also maybe hoping that the Supreme Court will hand them a victory so that they won't have to have a peaceful transfer of power. But I, I do think that that, you know, that that has crossed the line for a lot of people. Um, but I also think Trump says so many awful things. It it kind of just gets it just sort of goes off into the fog of oh there's Trump again. He's just saying stuff, and people don't take seriously what what a what a you know dramatic event has occurred. You know the New York Times, and I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm not a Times basher. My my wife works there, and I I know they are under all sorts of pressures and difficulties with print deadlines and the, and the rest. But when Trump said this stuff about not accepting a peaceful transition of power. Um, it, it made A15 on, on the newspaper. It, it, it had like a, a one sentence mention on the front page. So it was very small below the fold. It was just, it was like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And by the way, the president said something crazy again today. Um, you know, that, um, that phenomenon is real. There's, there's sort of, uh, there's sort of corruption exhaustion. I think the U.S. could bounce back from all that, but I think it w he would have to lose. <laughs> right. Yeah. I worry if this man gets another term, what it's going to mean for democracy and I really don't think that's a very original opinion here in the United States. I think we're all really wor worried. And I kind of wanted to move on to the, the, the bigger theme of the of the episode. Um, I mean, these were just three things that have happened in the last two weeks. We haven't even mentioned a pandemic and 200,000 people dying and the botched response from uh, the federal government. We haven't mentioned black people being shot by the police on a regular routine basis. We haven't mentioned Trump disparaging soldiers. Remember that one from a couple of weeks ago? That was that was the thing everybody was talking about. And that was the thing that well that was that was the last straw two weeks ago, Trump calling soldiers losers. But we seem to have forgotten that already. Uh self appointed militia roaming the streets. That's been happening. Why 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 you why is America a dumpster fire if if that's the way you wanna title this episode? Zach, do you want to have a hit at that one first? There has been an inattention at 
not only the federal level, but also the state and local level to just governing uh, and to the idea that the government is supposed to solve problems. People don't really believe anymore that the government is going to fix things, um, whether it's about climate change or about, uh, you know, the potholes in the street. And I think that that sort of breakdown in sort of civic faith is something that, that has to be restored in some way. You can't just restore it with pep talks. You will need some sort of big vision for the country that, that gets people sort of motivated to believe that you know they can participate in the democracy and that the democracy will care about their lives and and what is happening in their communities. Emily, what what what, what the, the the big question? Where where did it all where did it all go wrong? Where do you where do you pin the blame? I think a couple of things. First, at least since Reagan was president in the eighties, there's been this drumbeat of demonization of government. I mean, it was just this absolute poisoning of what the government can do. It's been long before Trump was, you know, demonizing government. There were a lot of other, you know, so-called like upstanding leaders like Reagan, like Bush and like on the Democratic side, too. Right. Bill Clinton continued the project of small government. All that's coming home to roost now. So it's been a long time in the making. Like you can't trash talk the government and then expect the government to still be around to fix a public health crisis, right? At the same time, the other thing people need to understand, I think, about the U.S. and what's happening is is the role race has played all along. In the U.K., you guys have public health system. In the U.S., we don't have it. We have conservatives and Republicans especially demonizing the idea of Social Security, which is, you know, giving people retirement money or, you know, helping the poor. And a lot of the hostility towards those programs has to do with racism and not wanting to give black people any kind of support. And I think now there's like a panic almost setting in amongst conservatives who are primarily white about what's happening demographically in the United States because there is this strand of like all the whites are in it together and, and screw all the black people. I, I really believe that. Um, so I think it's really that combination of racism and this like, long-term project to discredit and demonize the government. We'll come back to Zach and Emily later, but I've also spoken to Nick Robbins early, a HuffPost reporter, about a piece he wrote called 16 Straight Hours Inside the Alternate Reality of Pro-Trump TV Channel OAN. It's about a TV channel that makes Fox News look like the BBC, and is a pretty good example of the madness that's engulfing the states right now. So Nick, can you explain to us what OAN, or One America News Network, is? Hey Graham, yes I can. So One America News Network, or OAN, is to put it nicely a pro-Trump media channel. Uh, and it was founded in 2013 by a multimillionaire Republican donor, Robert Herring Sr., and his son, Charles Herring. To begin with, it is this sort of uh, straight news, kind of alternative to Fox News, conservative, but not necessarily far right or conspiracies. Um, Trump is not really on the scene yet, so they're not linked to him. But then... During the 2016 election, they decide to go all in for Trump. Right. Because I was going to say, from your initial comments, so far, so Fox News. And I think people kind of 
know roughly what 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 that is um you know kind of partisan pro republican but oan seems to take it to a different level right oh oan is just so far off the radar uh compared right. to fox news which has its own problems and has a litany of very questionable journalistic standards but oan is is a whole other uh ball game they basically traffic in conspiracies and uh wildly sycophantic interviews they have such a pro-trump bent that just every single piece of coverage is geared towards appeasing him or making him seem like uh, he can do no wrong and we've got a clip now of one of their um would would you call her would you call her one of their stars it's um chanel rion is that her name Yes, a big uh, important face for the network. She is listed as their chief uh, White House political correspondent, and uh, she gets a lot of access. She is in the briefing rooms at White House briefings. Um, She gets called on specifically by press secretaries and uh, by Trump himself and and actually was given a exclusive one-on-one interview with him, which aired on the day of the Republican National Convention. We're watching Joe Biden slip very gently into senility while you're at the top of your game. What's your secret? Well, I am four years younger, but that's not the big deal. I mean, that's terrific. It's one of my favorite parts of OAN. It's just a wonderful, (laughs) wonderful question to ask. So we've got a bit of a sense of of what it is. What were you you asked to do, Nick? What was the grand plan that HuffPost editors tasked you to do? So I was assigned to watch uh, 16 straight hours of OAN, um, which is actually an idea I pitched myself. So I suppose I only have myself to blame for this. Um, But I watched from 7 a.m. in the morning to a little after 11 p.m. at night. Um, I did not really get up apart from going to the kitchen to grab food or go to the bathroom. Uh, I, I will confess that at one time during an ad break, I ran downstairs to the corner store to get beer. I mean, this is this is like a this is like a dispatch from from the front line of war. What did you um, what did you see in the in the trenches? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely had thousand yard stare at multiple points. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw their morning coverage, the less bizarre part of uh, their coverage, relatively speaking, um, all the way through their late night primetime hosts who just really lean into uh, conspiracies and far-right guests and things that you would not see really on any other channel that purports to be a news network. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I noticed while watching this is that one part of it is that it's incredibly repetitive. And so I watched different reports and different clips and different interviews, sometimes as many as 11 times throughout the day. It, it became you know, a little too familiar almost. It became really seared into my brain, a lot of these reports. And there was one of the, one of the stories that they were kicking around was the, um, people remember the, the story by The Atlantic um, when Trump reportedly called uh, fallen soldiers losers. And um, they, they, while that story was kind of corroborated by many other U.S. outlets, including Fox News, 
uh, OEN weren't really having it as a as a story, were they? They they did their utmost to undermine the credibility of the story. Fast forward to September, the Atlantic is at it again, attacking Trump and defending Biden under the veneer of journalism. The activist money behind the Atlantic explains why. In 2017, the Atlantic, with a spiraling readership of just over 300,000, was purchased by a billionaire heiress, Lauren Powell Jobs. She bought the Atlantic for $100 million in a 70% stake. In purchasing the Atlantic, Powell Jobs restructured the entire board, bringing with her a pet editor, Jeffrey Goldberg, and a coterie of pet writers whose tasks increasingly appear to be one thing, elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. In this billionaire activism, Powell Jobs seems to have become America's new George Soros. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you mentioned George Soros, you're, um, I'm not even sure if using a dog whistle is the right is the right phrase. You know exactly what you're doing and everyone knows exactly what's happening here. You're pointing towards conspiracy theories um, and they make no kind of bones about that, it seems. Most of the things are not true on OAN and the things that are true are usually presented in a misleading way. Um, so, you know, they they really kind of lean into these conspiracies like the ones that you just heard. The, the bits I've watched of OAN, it has a feel of like a one of those kind of regional or local TV channels that are, are put together on a shoestring. But, but they do seem to have a, a hell of a lot of influence. And in your piece, you make the point that at least 35 million households have access to them. So they aren't just a local news station that has no influence. Is, 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 that, is that the point, really, is that people are watching this stuff? And as you say, it's the only reality that they have. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of it. The way that the information ecosystem works in America and the way that news consumption works in America is that especially when it comes to uh, people who identify as conservatives, they have a very different news consumption habit than people, you know, uh, to the left of them on the political spectrum or even, you know, moderate conservatives. So they get their news from fewer outlets and fewer sources, and they trust those sources to an extreme degree, and they distrust more established and mainstream news outlets which adhere to journalistic standards to an extreme degree and so you have this system where there are people who are getting their information from oan or from outlets like it and that's a very dangerous and destabilizing thing and and how are you after this how's the therapy going did you have to lie down in a dark room for a long time after this i feel have you recovered i feel great i feel better than ever <laughs> I'm ready to go again. Okay. I think I can do 18 this time. <laughs> That's the, building up to the full 24 hours as if you're a ma marathon runner. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, uh, I'm working up to it. And, uh, and eventually I'll just, you know, park myself in front of the television and you can find yeah. my skeleton days later. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Okay, just to uh, close out the show, I wanted to ask Zach and Emily a few quick-fire questions to give uh, us in the UK their, some honest responses and provide a cheat sheet or something they could say in the pub to their friends to make them sound more intelligent about 
American politics. So no pressure here, guys. Um, but the, 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 the weight of UK expectations are on your shoulders right now. So first question, we talked about the bad things in America. What's one good thing about America right now? Zach, what's one good thing about America? As, as bad as all of the, uh, the, the, as bad as the government's response to everything has been over the past six months, um, the public response has been quite remarkable. Uh, we had protests in every single, just about every single American city for months of this summer. And people don't come out and protest unless they think it's possible that protesting could make a difference. They come out when they actually believe that tomorrow can be better than today and that these problems can be addressed. If you are totally hopeless and don't believe that change is possible, you stay home and you just try to make do with watching you know, better TV shows or something. Um, the fact that people were out in the streets, I think really gave me a lot, renewed a lot of faith for me in, um, in our democracy, even as my, my faith in our government has been breaking down. Okay, Emily? That's a really good answer, Zach. And all I could come up with was um, apple cider donuts. <gasps> well, I had some this weekend. They're so good. <laughs> They're delicious, yeah. It is autumn here in the Northeast, and the leaves are golden and orange and just beautiful. And we have farm stands. And yes, we have fresh picked apples, but better, we have the apple cider donut, which is delicious. I don't Amazing. know if you have that in the UK. Uh, not specific, no. Bonus points for saying autumn rather than fall. So that's uh, you. You win that round <laughs> for that. Um, next one, uh, slightly more, slightly more. Um, the uh, vice president pick does Kamala Harris matter as a as a character in in this election race? Yes, absolutely. She's okay. So I am currently writing a whole thing about how just because you're a woman isn't necessarily like feminist if you become a leader. That said, we like to break boundaries or, you know, smash ceilings here in the U.S. So just baseline, if Kamala Harris becomes a vice president, that's pretty huge here in the U.S. We've not had a woman in that position before. So that's exciting. Um, and she is progressive and feminist herself. So it makes a difference for sure. OK, Zach. Does a, does a VP I think we might disagree, matter? Emily. I th historically, the VP uh, <laughs> has... Uh, has very little impact on on the electoral result. I think the the difference this year could be that because the Biden campaign has been so reluctant to embrace um, a message other than get get rid of Trump, um, that the identities of the people running I think probably matter more this cycle than they have in previous cycles. So um, my my guess is it won't matter very much, but I think it still would it will still matter more than in the past um, because the fact that that Joe Biden is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is Kamala Harris is, is much more meaningful when when that's really what the whole election is about. It's not it's not about child care policy. It's not about, uh, you know, a gas tax or something. It's about getting rid of Donald Trump and having these new people in the office. OK, and final one. So uh, I described perhaps unkindly uh, America as a, a dumpster fire. What do you guys make of the UK right now? <laughs> From a from an American vantage point, how does the how does the UK look? Yes, I am so return... glad you brought this up. <laughs> return fire. <laughs> I mean, we've spent the past several years looking at the dumpster fire of Brexit <laughs> and being like, "What the hell is going on over there?" Right. Um. So yeah, I I wondered about you actually 
casting aspersions on yeah. us when we have watched you guys melt down for a long time. <laughs> okay. I don't even know what's going on with Brexit anymore or Boris Johnson. We could we could do a whole episode with you where you explain Boris Johnson to us. I mean, my God, right? I, I do not understand that man's appeal. I don't get it at all. I, 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 can, I can sort of understand why people are, are drawn to Trump in, in the United States. I, I, he has a certain charisma. But I, I don't just, whatever it is with, with Boris, like it does not compute with me at all. Thanks for joining me, Zach, Emily and Nick. And thanks everyone for listening. America does seem to have lost much of its sheen, but it's probably worth noting the UK doesn't look to be in great shape through American eyes either. But it's perhaps too simplistic to blame Trump for everything. And actually, he seems more like a symptom of the malaise than the cause. Please do subscribe now for more episodes and make sure you check out HuffPost UK's other podcasts, including Commons People, which is our weekly look at UK politics, and they're available in all the usual places. Thanks very much and speak to you again.